The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Sportbox. Thanks for joining us this Friday morning. I'm Jeff Cutmore with Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. In the headlines, Asian stocks rise on signs relations between Washington and Beijing are warming as U.S. and Chinese trade representatives agree to strengthen their cooperation in implementing the Phase 1 trade deal. Attention turns to the U.S. non-farm payroll report, which is expected to show more than 20 million jobs were lost in April and the unemployment rate hitting the highest level since the Great Depression. The yield on the two-year Treasury falls to a record low amid concerns about the labour market, while Fed fund futures price in negative interest rates for the first time. Riding a recovery, Uber shares spike in extended trade after the ride-hailing service says bookings are rising off April lows and CEO Dara Khosrowshahi says it will be quarters, not years, before the group is profitable. And ECB President Christine Lagarde says the central bank is undeterred by the German court order on its bond-buying plan. We speak to the former executive board member Lorenzo Binismargi and former President Vitor Constancio to get their take. So welcome to the programme. Let's start off just by taking a look at Siemens, the German industrial business, giving us a second quarter orders drop of uh, 8% to 15.15 billion euros. The uh, prior year was 16.46 billion. The second quarter revenue line in at 14.23 billion euros is against a 14.25 billion for the year ago period. So that is effectively a flat number. Second quarter shareholders net income at 652 million euros. Uh, that um, indicating a significant decline from the 1.81 billion euros developed in the second quarter of 2019. Uh, the CEO describes the second quarter as robust given the serious circumstances and importantly I think for existing shareholders the group says they will keep the original timeline for the spin-off of the Siemens energy business. Uh, they say they expect to reach the bottom in the third quarter of fiscal 2020, which I think is very encouraging because previously there has been an issue around industrial sector guidance. So the company just repeating something they've told us previously ahead of these numbers that they cannot confirm guidance for full year 
year 2020. But I think it's important that the CEO does feel they can talk about reaching the bottom in the third quarter of fiscal 2020. So we have a little bit of visibility then in terms of the trajectory of the order book. But at the moment, the uh, head of the business saying difficult to uh, make a full year plan in terms of where revenue and profit is likely to go. Let's bring Annette into the conversation. Annette, this is a business that you follow closely. What else do you pull out of the uh, earnings here? What else should we challenge Joe Kayser with when the CEO joins us at 8.50 CET? Yes, I guess it will be most likely about the guidance. I mean, they're also saying that they're not sticking to their guidance. And I guess the interesting point is what makes them so confident to already call the bottom of that crisis uh, in, uh, yeah, in, for at an exact timing. So I guess also going forward, interesting will be how um, he thinks, um, yeah, the the business as such is going um, is going ahead, and also whether he thinks they need more state or they need state aid or state guaranteed loans. I mean, there were reports that they're also trying to increase liquidity via a 3 billion euro loan, perhaps plans where they stand in that respect. But all in all, just to give you an overview of the numbers, um, I guess it when it comes to at least EBDA, it's actually a miss, um, according to consensus um, analysts. And also the orders seem to be lower than um, analysts had expected for the first, uh, for their second quarter, one should say, because it's their second quarter. Um, I guess, well, if they're saying they reach, they, they think they reach a bottom in the third quarter of their fiscal year 2020, that would be like our normal technical second quarter. So it's pretty soon, I guess. Um, that's the interesting point. But they think about the recovery, whether, whether it will be a strong recovery once all the lockdown restrictions are lifted or whether they think it will not be a strong recovery. I guess it's also interesting to see which field um, they are operating in will be the most strongest. I guess we have seen the near is very strong a business that they IPO'd and also of course whether they stick to their plan to IPO the energy business by September or by your autumn this year given the difficult markets Jeff. Terrific, Annette. We'll come back to you a little bit later on. I know we've got a, a little bit more time until we talk to Joe Kayser, so we'll get a fuller look at the statement. Joe will be up at 8.50 CET, and we'll have that conversation about visibility in industrial sector earnings. Um, ING numbers through, the group giving us a first quarter 2020 net number of 670 million euros. First quarter net core lending up 12.3 billion uh, in the first quarter of 2020, largely Reflecting, the group says, liquidity provided um, in late March. Net customer deposit inflow uh, amounted to 9.2 billion euros. The <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, first quarter 2020 result then before tax at 1.017 uh, billion, which was 35.7% lower than in the equivalent period in 2019. The uh, group says the commercial performance in the first quarter brought broadly in line with the year earlier period and the group remains confident obviously about the future so first quarter total income decreasing by about 65 million euros or 1.4% to 4.5 
billion compared with the year-ago period. The group is well capitalised and has a very stable funding base, says the CEO, the CT1 ratio, in at 14%, which is very robust for a bank in this current environment. Let's bring in the CFO. Uh, Tanata uh, Futrakal is with us, the CFO of ING. Tanata, great to have you on the programme. Thanks for joining us this hour. Let me start by asking you what your visibility is like at this point. Um, do you see any prospect of bottoming in the second or third quarter at this point? Yeah. Well, thank you very much to be on your show. I think first off, I just wanted to say that uh, it's been a challenging quarter for all of us uh, here at the bank. But I think we're just wanting to make sure that we're operationally resilient. You know, we have most of our uh, employees now working from home. 80% are there. We're helping our 39 million customer worldwide with their banking services. I think to, to give you some headlines number, I think we granted uh, payment holidays to over 100,000 uh, uh, retail customers. And as you mentioned at the top of the, the segment, that we provided 5.9 billion in additional liquidity to our corporate customers themselves, right? So very much dealing with our customers, like our strategy on basically on a digital manner, where now over 81% or 86% of our interaction with our customers is through digital channels. And you can see that uh, very much uh, accelerated by the current lockdown that we have uh, in a number of our markets. Now, to address your questions, really, our view is um, is that we're going into uncharted territories over the next few months. People talk a lot whether it's a V-shape, U-shape, or even a W-shape recovery. Our, our own house view is that we will have a sharp decline over the next period, but not as sharp recovery. I think it will be more like an elongated uh, V-shape recovery. And that's what uh, we are prepared for and planning on. I was looking for, for some detail on, on provisioning and what your expectation is around loan loss provisions, whether that's in the wholesale operation or whether that's to do with uh, the retail consumer. I didn't see a number, but maybe I'm just looking in the wrong place. Can you just tell us a little bit about what your loan loss expectations are and how you're intending to manage the book? Yes. So we have in in any quarter always loan loss provision for for truly impaired loans. And that actually is roughly the same as we had in Q4. So approximately 400 million euros for 40. On top of which, given the uh, worsening economic outlook, we have uh, added uh, a stage two overlay in terms of provisioning of approximately 250 million, with a majority of that in the wholesale banking uh, piece of, uh, of um, the business. But going forward, of course, we will watch uh, what's happening in terms of GDP forecasts, in terms of uh, employment, property prices, and we'll take another look uh, at the end of the second quarter where we stand. Uh, good morning, sir. I'm just looking down at page four of 40, uh, 27 on your results, and I notice the interest margin is coming in at 1.51%. Now, ordinarily, uh, you would expect to try and increase that figure as well. But given what's happening uh, with uh, the ECB and their rates and, and of course, uh, uh, the generous terms which you're having to offer to a lot of customers at the moment, is 1.5% actually sustainable uh, rather than going up from here? 
Yeah, I think if you look at our net interest income, it's uh, I think coming out of uh, Q4 is about one one fifty seven, and now we are at one fifty one. I think the reason may be for a small contraction of our net interest margin is because our balance sheet has been extended because of uh, some of the loans and some of the liquidity that we see coming into our bank. But on a rolling four quarter basis, we're still standing at approximately 154 basis points, which is roughly the same as we had uh, a year ago. And I think we, we do make sure that we have pricing discipline in terms of making sure we're offering uh, our loans to our customer at the right credit spread. And at the same time, making sure we manage our liability at a low price. You did mention negative interest rates from the ECB, but at the same time, the ECB has also been providing quite a uh, favorable funding for banks uh, to get through this difficult period as well. So some good, some bad uh, at the same time, but we're confident that we can manage our net interest income in a good way over the coming quarters. Tanata, can I talk about expenses? Because I saw in the quarter that they went up by 1.7%. You've attributed some of that to seasonality around regulatory costs, but also there's an element around collective labour agreements. So we're talking about wages for employees here. We know the labour market has fundamentally changed, at least in the short term, and possibly a, a number of quarters from here. What costs do you expect to take out of the business and will you target them towards employees? Yeah, I think, uh, yes, indeed, we have our normal collective labor agreement, which are negotiated on a multi-year basis. So that's already uh, been done prior to this whole corona crisis happening. At the same time, we do have uh, efficiency programs and we intend to continue with those efficiency programs and basically make sure that as we go through our digital transformation, that we can broadly keep uh, cost increases to the kind of levels that you see now. So I think we're quite happy with a, a cost increase net of all the expenses that we run of 1.5, 1.7%. I think that that's quite a good achievement coming into Q1. Uh, Tanata, can I ask, just, just ask you a broader question? You are based in the Netherlands. Uh, you are, in fact, in Amsterdam. And, and there's been a certain amount of controversy about the way the authorities in the Netherlands have approached the lockdown and have approached coronavirus. Can I just get your impression of whether you feel that um, this is working and how your customers are responding to this? Is it affecting the way you think that business is being done in, uh, in the Netherlands at the moment? Yeah. I mean, just in, in terms of the broader context, I think uh, we were really quite happy with how our Ministry of Finance have handled the situation. Uh, you know, our national bank, the Dutch National Bank, have been very helpful in terms of, for example, giving certain relief from a capital perspective to financial institutions. And I think one thing you need to know about the Dutch society is incredibly digital uh, society. So in fact, we're able to operate almost uh, all digital or by mobile with our customer base. We do keep some limited branches open to handle uh, requests. But I think uh, so far, so good. I think the, the customers are able to, to really deal with us on almost any request through a digital channel. Uh, great having you on the programme and thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, Tanata Futrakal, the CFO of ING. Uh, coming up, another rough week for US weekly jobless claims as attention now turns to the unemployment rate. We're going to talk about that when we come back. And a reminder, if you want to catch up on all the COVID-19 related news that we cover here on Squawkbox, do go check out the podcast. 
If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Sometimes all you need is a little bit of a change in the mood in the air and people respond to that. And I think this is what we're seeing here in terms of the Asian market session. Okay, I know that we had a positive close in the United States and that legacy is coming through. But why did we have a positive close in the United States, given that there were a a couple of lumpy days uh, in the week where we did see sentiment decline? I think some of that is to do with the fact that uh, Mr. Pompeo told CNBC, we think there is still room for progress on trade discussions, even as the air is rather frosty around this issue of an investigation involving Beijing into the origins of COVID-19. So the markets have run with that ball. And unsurprisingly, uh, the Japanese market, which is quite dependent on export and trade markets remaining open, up 2.4% at this point. But it is a broad positive sweep for the Asian market session at the moment. So what are, what do the US futures tell us at this point? Well, let's have a look at the board and we'll just show you the implied open for US futures here is 340 points for the Dow to the upside, notwithstanding the fact that the jobs data today is going to be truly horrible. But the market continues to buy into this idea that we can look through some of the weaker macro numbers and that things are going to be okay. I wonder whether this is going to be one of those buy the rumours, sell the facts stories. The minute we start to see the lockdowns come off and the idea that we don't get any further support from central banks or governments uh, begins to dissipate in the market, whether that is the moment then that we start to see some of these markets flatten out and potentially decline. But it's all just guesswork at the moment. This is what the numbers tell us is going to happen at the start of the trading session. So we'll wait and we'll watch and we'll see what goes on here. The most important story, I think, at the moment, and one that everybody needs to conjure with, and they said perhaps it could never happen, and that is the idea of negative interest rates in the United States. And I just want to show you this wall because the action between the twos and the tens, fascinating. Uh, It tells you, for one, the fact that the bond market disagrees with the equity market about the bright sunny uplands and the future for strong earnings ultimately that is implied by the numbers that you see delivered in the uh, uh, equity markets at the moment. The bond market is telling you something different about a world of pain, about a world of slow economic recovery and a world where recession is almost inevitable. And the fact that 
Federal fund futures are implying negative interest rates at the moment just reinforces that idea. You'll have heard many U.S. economists over recent years pointing the finger at the ECB, laughing, talking about socialist Europe and how only the European socialists could indulge in negative interest rates to try and get their economy up and firing on all cylinders. Increasingly, it's gone rather quiet on that subject now as we look at what federal funds is suggesting may happen in the US economy. And I take no pleasure from making that point, but it is just worth bearing in mind this difference of opinion we see between the fixed income community and those people who are trading in equity markets at the moment and think that things are going to be okay and that we'll have a V-shaped recovery. Let's talk about some of the other stories. China is making it easier for foreign investors to access Chinese stocks and bonds. Beijing is scrapping the need for overseas institutions to apply for quotas in two major inbound investment schemes. The relaxation of regulations will start from June the 6th in a sign of China's intent to further open its financial markets. Trade representatives from China and the U.S. have agreed to work together on the phase one deal and create a favorable environment to implement their commitments. The conciliatory tone comes after a recent war of words between Washington and Beijing over the virus outbreak. U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer and Chinese Vice Premier Liu He held a phone call. They agreed to cooperate on public health measures and strengthen economic ties while noting progress had already been made. So separately, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told this channel there is a way forward if Beijing wants to engage in fair negotiations. If they, if they want to engage uh, in the world, if they want to protect property rights, if they want to conduct fair and reciprocal trade, if, if they're interested in that, which they tell us they are, then yeah, I think there's a, a path forward to do that. If they choose a different path, uh, if they choose a path where they uh, continue to operate in the way they've operated for the last 25 years, uh, President Trump's just going to say, nope, that doesn't work for the American people and the American worker, and we're going to head down a different path. Nearly 3.2 million Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week. That is the lowest number since the U.S. went into lockdown, but the figure was slightly higher than the expectation. In total, 33.5 million people have lost their jobs over the past seven weeks. Later today, the U.S. Labor Department releases its key non-farm payroll report, with the unemployment rate expected to have jumped to at least 16% last month. Greg Williamson is the head of strategy at Pluribus Labs. He joins us now. Uh, Greg, good morning to you. I just wanted to pick up on that because I think it is very important, this question of what the federal funds rate is implying in terms of interest rates in the United States. Is it possible that we will ultimately see negative interest rates in the U.S.? Jeff, thank you very much. Uh, There is the potential that we can see negative interest rates in the United States, given the amount of money that the Fed is providing to the fixed income markets. But we are seeing a dislocation between uh, the equity markets and the fixed income markets, specifically because of the Fed support of the fixed income markets. Without the Fed supporting the equity markets, we see equities moving to a different drummer than than the fixed income markets currently are. 
Greg, I want to turn focus to the unemployment rate because we're expecting a shocker today when it comes to the non-farm payrolls. 16% unemployment rate, well and truly up from the 4.4%. Do you think we're getting to the worst of it when it comes to the job losses in the States at this point? Uh, who would have thought we would have pined for a 770,000 job loss that we saw last month? But you're right. We, we are going to see a 21 to 22 million number this month. The big surprise would be if it was less than $20 million and an unemployment rate of 16 percent at the U3 or traditional unemplo- unemployment level. Now, the White House Kevin Hastert uh, advisor has already said that we could see an unemployment rate in the United States go to 20 percent before things get better. Um, I do believe that we are going to see continued losses uh, until we see a resolution to COVID. And when we see a resolution to COVID, either through uh, treatment such as remdesivir or through vaccines like Moderna, uh, there's going to be considered uh, considerable uh, uncertainty with regard to uh, economic growth potential in the United States. And until we see economic growth potential, uh, we won't see a reduction, a significant reduction in the unemployment rates. The real question with unemployment is how much is going to be temporary versus how much is going to be permanent. And we've seen surveys coming out of the U.S. that uh, say that up to 52 percent of small businesses think that they may have to shut down within six months. And a U.S. Chamber of Commerce survey says that 25 percent of small businesses may not reopen. However, we are seeing states start to reopen in the United States right now, and business start to come back in a phase one type transition. If that uh, transition occurs successfully and we start to see employees return to the marketplace, then we can say that we're closer to the bottom than we are uh, to finding a new low. Greg, I'm going to disagree with you slightly. I don't think that is the real question in employment. I think jobs can come back, but it's the quality of the jobs, the productivity from those jobs. I think that is the key because we know that the US is very good at getting the informal sector, the temporary jobs, the service sector facing jobs, perhaps lower pay jobs back on track very quickly. I'm talking about the aviation jobs lost, the the engine manufacturers, the auto manufacturers, people with real skills and real productivity for the US economy. Surely that is the key question. Absolutely. And we think that uh, in the longer term, we're going to see some very strong, uh, productive type jobs come back to the economy. Even in this week's current activity, where who would have thought we would have been up in the U.S. equity markets, given what Warren Buffett said about finding no new deals in this era of uncertainty and Elon Musk saying his own stock was overvalued. And 35% of S&P 500 companies saying that they are foregoing all forward guidance, uh, that the equity prices would be up. They're up because of hope and because of the fact that certain companies like healthcare, digital content delivery, autonomous vehicles, robotics, and virtual presence, things that represent the future are doing quite well. And in the future, we're going to see the economy grow in the United States due to low inventory replacement needs, pent up consumer demands, uh, low energy prices, uh, stimulus payments, which a large, surprisingly large percentage have gone into savings and have not been spent. We're going to see onshoring of manufacturing, particularly in the medical supply and infrastructure building and rebuilding. We're going to see high-speed Internet developed throughout the United States, best-in-class virtual education. Single-family, single-family home demand is increasing significantly, according to realtors in the United States, as uh, individuals realize they don't want to live in highly densely populated urban areas. 
and we're going to see automatic demand increase because people are, have already said they're going to move away from the use of public transportation. All of those types of jobs are not the service sector jobs, but the, the skilled, uh, higher productivity, higher wage jobs that Americans have been looking for. So we're positive. We have a very positive outlook for the uh, mid to longer term future. The question is, you know, what is going to happen in the short term and how low will unemployment go or how high will unemployment go uh, before we see uh, a more sustained and important turnaround? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.